Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Well, she's been the victim of dozens of newspaper cartoons and editorials calling for her to resign, like this one from 2017. Quote, finally, Gillian Triggs has no choice but to resign. She's framed at least one of these cartoons and, wryly amused, keeps the rest in her collection. Gillian Triggs never planned to work in human rights. As a child, she loved to dance. Later, she became a respected international lawyer and academic. But after a surprise tap on the shoulder to head the Human Rights Commission, she became a rather powerful voice and a powerful thorn in the government of the day's backside. Gillian Triggs, welcome to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for the introduction. <laughs> How many cartoons are there in this collection, by the way? Do you have a favourite? Well, well, at one stage, I think I had about 40, but I, uh, I, people were sending them to me from all over Australia and indeed other parts of the world when they saw them. Some were, some were um, quite pleasant, quite, quite encouraging, and others were really very, very difficult to handle. But uh, over time, I got used to it. You've joked, in fact, that you'll uh, take delight in explaining those cartoons to your grandchildren <laughs> when they're old enough. What will you tell them? Why were you in the paper so much? Well, I wonder if if they will ever ask, but but if they do, I think I'd like to just explain just that it was really not about me at all, although it looked like it. It was really attacking the institution of the Australian Human Rights Commission, and particularly with regard to refugees, uh, Indigenous issues, uh, uh, and so on. So, I mean, I think it. I'd like to try to explain to them that uh, uh, it looked it looked bad at a personal level, and indeed was an attack, of course, personally. But it it really was a much more damaging attack on on the institutions of Australia that that really protect rights. Of course, uh, Australia is home uh, for you now. It's not where your life began. That was London. You had this passion for dance. I did not know it was. It wasn't until you're twelve that you moved to Australia. What was your childhood like? Oh, I, I sometimes think it was a little bit like um, the Paddington Bear books. You know, we lived in a little terrace house in North London and uh, I went to the local convent and went to ballet school from the time I was about four, I think, and my parents would take us to the British Museum. It was that sort of life, really, post-war London. A time of, of course, great poverty, uh, great swathes of London bombed out and it was, took a very long time for London to recover, which, of course, it did. But uh, but it was a it was a wonderful childhood I must say and uh, I was very very upset at the idea of being torn away from my my ballet classes and and school to go to Australia but uh, I got used to that fairly quickly as well. Well, I suppose Paddington came from Peru. You were sent to another uh, location in the <laughs> Antipodes. So law beckoned you strongly. I mean, you've had a, a illustrious career, but in international and commercial law. Uh, you weren't a human rights lawyer initially. And yet in 2012, when you were dean of the Sydney Law School, a pretty prestigious position, you were tapped on the shoulder by then Attorney General uh, General Nicola Roxon to head the Human Rights Commission. Did you immediately say yes? I did, um, I did mention to Nicola that I was not um, a, a human rights specialist, that I'd really gone out of my way, really, as a lawyer, particularly international law, to be a generalist. So I, I would, I did work on Antarctica and territorial boundaries, on offshore oil and gas, on 
um, all sorts of technical questions of international law, but that always included human rights law. And I did work on war crimes and and indigenous issues, prisoners' rights, and so on. But it was by no means a specialisation. And my, many of my colleagues at the at the Melbourne Law School would have looked askance in a way at my being approached for a human rights job. But so I did mention this to to Nicola and said, you know, is she sure that uh, you know I'm the right person for the job? And she said she really wanted somebody who had a much broader understanding of the way international law works. So at that, I very readily said yes. If you just joined me on RN Drive, Gillian Triggs is with me. We're talking about her life and, uh, well, we're about to talk about the state of human rights in this country and around the world. I mean, during your five-year term, you were quite outspoken about the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers by Australian authorities. Obviously, it was the time of boat turnbacks, offshore detention. Flash forward to today, and more than 40 asylum seekers recently made uh, their trip to Australia by boat. They arrived on the shores of Western Australia. They're now being processed on the island of Nauru. I mean, I just wonder what you think about this. Is it sort of history rep- repeating in some ways? I mean, you were such a fierce opponent of offshore detention. Are you saddened to see it being employed again? Well, perhaps I, I, I should begin and want to begin by, by saying how delighted I am to be back in Australia. But also, I think, as everyone knows, we have a new government and we have a government that uh, has reinvigorated the refugee resettlement program and adopted a number of, of very good policies. So uh, it's something of the lesson that I've learned working with the UN for the more than the last four and a half years is that things are rarely black and white. They're rarely all good, uh, rarely compliant totally with international law. And I think here we have a situation where the Australian government continues to apply the policy established 10, 12, uh, 13 years ago, which uh, requires that somebody who comes without a, a visa to Australia through a mar- as a maritime arrival uh, would have to go to um, uh, Papua New Guinea uh, and uh, and or Nauru, and that policy hasn't changed, and the government's maintained it, and and it's manifestly done so with the, the recent arrivals. But I did want to really stress that although that policy, in the view of the United Nations Human Rights Commission, and certainly in my my own view as a lawyer. Uh, these policies uh, run the risk of being in egregious breach of international law, particularly the treatment of children held without education, without proper support. I think that's been very troubling. But what I would like to stress is that the Australian policy has now really been remarkable in coming back to the fundamental principles that Australia has supported for a long time, which is a very good uh, refugee resettlement program. It's world class, and Australia, I believe, now um, offers is now the second uh, highest um, country in the world to offer offer these refugee places for for resettlement. So things have changed, and they've changed for the better. But I can see politically why the government continues to maintain the policy of sending people who have a legal right to claim asylum uh, are sent nonetheless to to, uh, to in, in this case now Nauru. I wonder how you think about the High Court's recent overturning of that central practice of Australia's hardline border policy ruling that uh, Australia can't detain people illegally. And you sort of contrast that with your work for the UN. You must have heard some pretty different viewpoints globally. What does the world think of Australia's policies in this area? Well, I think perhaps one of the first points to make is it's extraordinary that it should take 20 years to overturn the Alcatel decision. Um, and that, I think, bespeaks the, the reality that Australia is the only commonwealth country in the world without a federal charter of rights. Uh, there are really very few instruments for the courts to use to overturn that 
decision and, and it took a very long time. In the international environment, I think, because much of my job was um, somewhat to my surprise, actually diplomatic. I spent a lot of time, I traveled to more than uh, 40 countries over the last four years and much of the time at a diplomatic level to try to talk to ministers, to senior officials, sometimes uh, premiers, prime ministers and presidents. Um, and uh, it, it was, I've learned how important it is to be both principled in terms of international legal principles, but also to be pragmatic. They do have other border security concerns in many countries, of course, uh, problems of armed groups on their borders, lots of uh, inter-ethnic rivalries and uh, and conflict. And I think one learns uh, that, uh, that that their world is much more complex than it sometimes seems from Australia. Um, but what, what I wanted to say in particular is that um, at the international level, critical issues are trade, defence, um, cultural sometimes, education. Um, countries are not going to be critical of, of another country over its migration policy. Uh, and in the main, Australia's policies were seen as uh, uh, so extreme that most countries really didn't want to go there. The, of course, the, the exception uh, that many of you will know about is the United Kingdom with the, with the Rwanda uh, solution that the the UK has attempted to achieve, but but again, because the courts have been so much stronger in the United Kingdom, in the United States, the European Convention on Human Rights, all of these have managed to contain um, any any country successfully taking up the Australian model. Um, and indeed, I think it's fair to say that most countries that I dealt with, particularly in Europe and the Nordics, do not want to be associated with a policy as as extreme as Australia's. I'm just reflecting on when you, one of your comments as you're outgoing from the commission in 2017 was a reiteration of your long-held belief that Australia needs a Bill of Rights. You said that Australia's mm -hmm. human rights are, quote, regressing on every front. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if there's any note of positivity to find, not that there has to be, but I'm just wondering if you've seen any sign that Australia takes human rights more seriously. Well, I, I think that we saw the effort by the by the current government to to bring in the voice at a constitutional level, probably um, mistakenly. Uh, I think that may have put things back a little, but there may be now a clearing of the decks, if you like, and a bit more oxygen into why we need a, a, a legislated federal um, charter of, of rights. Mistakenly? Um, what do you mean? Well, I think it was always, I think we all know it's extremely difficult to get constitutional amendments through um, uh, successfully. And, and, and indeed, this was, this was the case. So although I think many, many Australians would like to have seen uh, some form of advisory body for, for Parliament, uh, the, the going for constitutional change was, was, was a step too far. And that's really what happened. Uh, so I think what, I, what I'd say is that there's a lot of goodwill, a lot of uh, spirit to support basic rights, uh, but a very little understanding of, of what those rights really are and how they can be enforced. I think it's fair to say that in many aspects of Australian society and law, we have fair egalitarian um, approaches to law. Um, in fact, it's that notion of, of a fair go for everybody that perhaps was damaging from the point of view of the of the proposed uh, constitutional change for a voice for Indigenous peoples. So I think there there are always rays of hope, and frankly, just in the few weeks that I've been back, uh, I, I see that Australian generosity of spirit. It's definitely there, but unfortunately, Australia is so far removed from those countries that uh, where where we have war, we have conflict, persecution, discrimination 
great poverty and hardship, Australia is re removed from much of that. And I think that means that there's not really an understanding of just why it's so important to have those laws that will protect fundamental civil rights. So now you've returned to Australia, how on earth will you fill your time in a way that can add to your editorial cartoon scrapbook? I can't imagine <laughs> there's too many more chapters in this, or, or maybe I'm wrong. What, 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 where does life take you from here? Well, I'm, I'm very much hoping never to attract a cartoon ever again. Um, but I would like, um, now that I, I'm not formally employed, um, um, having finished with, with the United Nations role that I had as Assistant Secretary General, um, I'd I would like to write a little bit about that experience, not not with a view to hashing over the past, but but to look to the future. What are the what are the solutions for the mass movements of peoples that we see today, and how can we how can we garner the kind of humanitarian support that's so crucial? Uh, working with the international financial institutions, working with the with the private sector, and with civil society, faith groups, um, community groups, and I think that's where you asked where the ray of light is, and I think it lies there. Um, and I'd like to write about that a bit, but I'd also like to do very quietly behind the scenes working with some of the uh, human rights uh, but refugee groups in Australia, um, pro bono assistance if I can, wherever I might be useful, but very quietly. Yes, I think a quiet life might uh, suit you well. Gillian, <laughs> uh, uh, welcome back to Australia. Great to, uh, to get a chance to talk to you. Gillian Triggs has been my guest, the former president of the Human Rights Commission. Great to talk to you. Great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. 